page one. This is our last message of our 2023 conference on true spirituality. And every year, it's pretty much the same. The attendance goes down. And on Sunday night, people often have that filled up look like Thanksgiving afternoon. I couldn't eat another bite. So I just thought I'd share a little bit of sweet dessert on top of all the meat and potatoes and vegetables y'all have been having. And this sort of builds upon my message yesterday afternoon on communion with God. And so the theme tonight is heaven on earth. Uh, Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, which is a Jewish way of saying everything up there, everything down here. Colossians 1 also talks about he created everything visible and invisible, everything natural that we can see, feel, touch, taste, and everything intangible and audible, the supernatural realm, which would be the third heaven. You remember what the three heavens are. Another verse in the Bible says, the heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to the sons of men. Um, that last part of it has been misunderstood by people that don't know enough about their Bible. When it says that <coughs> earth belongs to the sons of men, that does not mean we should not go to the moon or explore outer space. There were people that said Neil Armstrong should not have gone to the moon. Earth belongs to the sons of men. But sometimes I wonder... Uh, should we spend billions and trillions of dollars on space exploration when it's very unlikely we'll ever go much further than Mars or Venus? Certainly not to other galaxies, unless you read or watch a lot of science fiction, you know, Star Trek and all of that. But let's concentrate on the heavens and the earth and see how God has developed the idea of heaven on earth. It began, mentioned in Genesis 1, but especially in chapter 2, God created the universe, by the way, let me throw in a parenthesis. God is not as big as the universe. He's bigger than the universe. He is infinitely bigger than the universe. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, uh, said, Lord, we dedicate this house to you, but this house can't contain you. The heavens of heavens cannot contain you. And that's the Hebrew way of saying the whole universe. The heavens, all three, cannot contain God. But yet, God is everywhere, and he shows his glory in various ways, the Bible says. says in uh, Psalm 19.1, the heavens, notice, the heavens declare the glory of God, and that everything down here declares it, somewhat indirectly, like a shadow or a reflection. But then you get it narrower from not just the stars, but planet Earth, and then at the beginning, one specific place on planet Earth, the Garden of Eden. That was a kind of heaven on earth. We see that, for example, in what that very word Eden means. In Hebrew, it means pleasures, delight. And that's what it was. Good tasty food. Tame animals. Have you ever thought, what was it like before Adam and Eve sinned? God says, it's all very good. Especially the Garden of Eden, very, very good. Very peaceful. And the, uh, the food tasted good. They were forbidden to eat that one tree, whatever that was. 
But everything else was very good. It had not been tainted by the curse on creation that Adam and Eve brought in in chapter 3, where things are not perfect, and that's why there are worms in the apples and things like that. But imagine what it tasted like. I'm intrigued. Holy sanctification and imagination. What was it like back then? (laughs) Animals weren't wild. They were tame. They were pets. If I had been there, I'd like to have ridden on the back of a tiger. Wouldn't you like to do that, Christopher? Right on, or on an elephant. <coughs> they would have been pets and tame and friendly. Even the snakes, everything, the bugs, everything, and the skunks didn't stink. <coughs> Excuse me, a little bit of tickle in my throat. So it was a heaven on earth filled with pleasure and delight and the glory of God. And that by putting various scriptures together, we realize that what made it heaven on earth was not just this peaceful environment and the good food and the animals, um, but that God visited them. For example, it says there in Genesis 2, actually Genesis 3, God visited them in the cool of the day. That didn't mean that, well, it was hot, so at other times it was scorching, but no, there was temperature variations, uh, the cool of the day. And that would probably be at a certain time. Uh, you know, you, when it's hot in the summer, you wait for that cool time. And when it's cold in winter, you wait maybe for it'll be a little bit warmer. And God visited them. Think about that. God communed with them, as I said yesterday. And it was in the garden, such as in the great hymn, in the garden. He walks with me, talks with me. That garden theme is found in elsewhere in the Bible. But God appeared to them, but not face to face. Because, remember God had said, nobody can see my face and live. Even though Adam and Eve had no sin. Uh, They were kind of like the angels that shielded their face even though they were innocent. But they saw something. Well, I'm persuaded that what they saw and heard were first the visible glory of God that later appeared various times in scripture. Okay, class, anybody want to tell me what that Hebrew word for it is? The Shekinah, the bright light. And I mentioned in my message it would appear over the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And then God would speak with them. And that's the Hebrew term, Bath Kol, literally the daughter of the voice. And that also was heard in the Holy of Holies. And so God appeared indirectly and spoke with them. And he communed with them. Um, not just at the cool of the day, but probably from time to time. We don't know how long it was like this before they sinned. Uh, it probably was a relatively short time. This is where you put two and two together and compare scripture with scripture. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. If they had done that very quickly, Cain would have been born. But we find Cain was born after they fell, so it wasn't like... Well, they were there for six months. Oh, honey, we forgot to produce children. No. So it was probably fairly quickly. The ancient Jews said within like 24 hours, and then they spoiled it. So there is the tame animals. There is peace, love, holiness, communion with God. And then there are these trees. There are many trees. And there is the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. This was literally paradise because I think I've explained to you the word paradise. It's used in the New Testament about heaven. But um, I told you the Hebrew 
for Eden. Um, there was another word when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. That was done before Jesus came so that Greek-speaking Jews could read their Bible. And when they came to Garden of Eden, they used the word paradise. Actually, pardes, coming from Persian. And it meant the garden around the palace of the king. Kind of like the Rose Garden uh, with our uh, White House or the garden outside of Buckingham Palace in London. And that was a garden where only the king and his royal family could go. So that tells you a little bit about the Garden of Eden. God visited his, his people in his special garden. But it was paradise. But then something spoiled it. And it's been called Paradise Lost. Has anybody ever read the epic poem by John Milton? Paradise Lost. And there was no more communing with God. They lost it. Everything changed very quickly. They were put out of the garden, but right before that, God pronounced several curses. Eve, when you bear children, you're going to go through great labor pains. It's going to be difficult to submit to your husband, but you still have to do that. You are self-made. Adam, you were a gardener. Now you're going to be a, a sweat-producing farmer. It's going to be hard work. By the way, farmers will say, it is hard work, as the Andruses. Um, and then there are other things. Because of their sin, his sin in particular, the earth would be cursed. Uh, the whole cosmos is affected. The animals become wild. Skunks began to stink. And death came in. Paradise was lost, so they were put out of the garden. And, of course, you can begin to imagine what was it like the very moment they sinned. They felt different. What happened? They looked at each other kind of guilty. Eve, you look different. Just something about your face. Adam, you don't have that smile anymore. You look sad and guilty. Guilt was a new thing for them, but they realized they had sinned against God, and then God shows up not to commune with them, but to lay these curses upon them, but he also gave them the promise there'll be a, a Messiah one day, that would defeat the devil, and that implies there'll be salvation, and God covered them with animal skins, take off the fig leaves, put on these skins, and that would be the very first animal sacrifice that would typify our Lord Jesus. So paradise was lost, and they were put out, and then they had children, more children, everybody in the world except Jesus, since then, has been born with this sin. Um, and ever since then, not only is mankind sinful, but it's like there's an inbuilt intuition that everybody has something is wrong. Philosophers guess at the answer, and all sorts of people try experiments. That's where religions come from, but they sense there's a problem somewhere. Well, the problem is sin, and it started in the garden, and we're outside the garden. There was a line in an old song from my youth, and the, the line was, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It's from that song glorifying the Woodstock Festival in 1969. And it was interesting. It was like he said, we've got to get back to the garden. And some of the old hippies went out in the country and they had paradise on earth. It was not paradise on earth um, because there was sin. But it's like this yearning for a utopia. There have been utopian communities Robert Moore and all these other ones trying, and they always failed. 
communes, not just the hippies, but the Amish and others have tried to establish heaven on earth. They're not doing it God's way. Therefore, they will all fail because they're trying to build heaven on earth without God. So what's God's answer to that problem in order to restore heaven on earth? He would start again with a second Adam. Now, the second Adam was not really Noah, although there was a similarity. Noah and his family got on the ark. Everybody else drowned. They bought a few animals. Notice the animals. And then when they got off the ark, well, the trees began to grow again. Remember the olive branch that the dove found? And they got off, and Adam, uh, Adam, Noah was the father of the new race, as it were, because everybody has descended not only from Adam, but from Noah and his children and so forth. So God would start afresh, but not like that, but with what the Bible would call a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, and Romans 8, uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, makes contrasts and comparisons with Adam and Jesus. Adam was the head of a physical race. Jesus was the head of a spiritual race. We're all born in the race of Adam with sin. We need to re be, be reborn and have, have our lineage from Jesus, but that's spiritual, not physical. There would be a new Adam. There was the one that God promised to Adam and Eve that will crush the head of the serpent. That's interesting promise. I preached on that. It's what theologians call the Christus Victor scheme. Christ would be victorious over the devil. Crush the head of the serpent. He'd be the noble knight that defeats the uh, evil dragon and frees the fair maiden. Um, and so there's the second Adam that will uh, do what the first Adam could not do. Oh, by the way, there's also the promise of a new Eve. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, you'd say, that's Mary. In fact, they have said Eve is the new Mary. No, Eve was the husband of Adam, not the father of Adam. And it breaks down, by the way, they really, ex you know, we respect uh, Eve and she, uh, Eve. Mary, and she was greatly blessed, but they exalt her almost to a goddess, saying she was without sin. She hears prayers everywhere, especially the rosary, and, and, and she went to heaven without dying and things like that. But they even put Eve into that promise God gave, where it's, God says um, the, 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 the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. And that's fulfilled in Jesus defeating Satan and the Antichrist. But the Hebrew very explicitly says, he will crush his head. <sighs> Jerome, they call Saint Jerome, translated into Latin, and guess what he did? He changed the personal pronoun. She will defeat his head. No, Jerome, it was not she, it was he, Jesus, it was not Mary that defeated the devil. She, she wasn't even the co-redemptress, as they say. But Jesus was greater than Adam. Think about that. He didn't sin. He couldn't sin. Adam could sin, and he did, but Jesus couldn't. Now, that, that was one of the questions I expected last night, because I mentioned it briefly in my message. Um, being man, he could be tempted. He was tempted. Being God, he could not sin. His deity protected his humanity in such a way through the hypostatic union he was not capable of sinning, but he was capable in his humility of being tempted. 
but being God, he could not sin. That was an improvement upon Adam. What else? Uh, the first Adam was in a beautiful garden with tame animals and good food. Second Adam, when he was tempted, 40 days in the wilderness, not in a garden, not with Eve, he was alone, and there were wild animals. How do I know that? Look at Mark chapter 1. It says he was out in the wilderness with the wild animals. What wild animals would be there in Israel at that time? Well, late at night, they'd hear a wolf like that. You've heard wolves and coyotes. There were lions. How do I know? Well, Samson killed a lion, and David mentions lions, and so there would be wild animals like that and other such things, dangerous snakes. And so uh, imagine 40 days, 40 nights, all by yourself. What was it like at night? You had to be careful at night. Um, walking around, there might, you might stumble over a wild animal that would attack you. So just think about that. So there's a contrast. Not in a peaceful garden, but in a wilderness. What about food? Well, Adam had all this delicious food. Jesus was fasting. And uh, other such comparisons and contrasts, but here's significance. Adam had everything going for him, and he failed. Jesus had everything going against him, and he won. The second Adam is superior to the first. First Adam was just a man. The second one was the God-man. And this was the beginning of the defeat of the devil, the snake whose head he was crushing. You could say he was beginning to step on that serpent's head. Now, when I preached on the Christus Victor theme, I told stories about when I used to love to hunt rattlesnakes down at our ranch in Texas. You didn't know that, did you, Rick? I sent many rattlesnakes to the promised land and many water moccasins and um, anyway. But that's what Jesus did. He defeated the great serpent, um, not physically but spiritually. And that came to a climax when he was on the cross. Go look it up in Hebrews chapter 2. He defeated Satan who had defeated Adam and Eve. So the second Adam is, um, is far superior Another thing is uh, very significant. Lord Jesus, through his salvation, brings in more than what Adam lost. He brings us back into the garden, but not literally. By the way, where is that garden of Eden? Well, we've got clues, the, four, the conjunction of the four rivers, one of them Euphrates and so forth. It's probably in the area of uh, southern Iraq and uh, Kuwait, that general area. But you say, well, whatever happened to it? Well, it was washed away during the Noah's flood. So we don't need to go after Noah's Ark or find, you know, someone, maybe Steven Spielberg will do a movie about in search of the Garden of Eden. And there have been strange theories about that. But Jesus brings us into a greater garden, another better heaven on earth. Adam was on probation. Christ brings permanent salvation. So here are some more contrasts. He, now, think about this. Jesus not only brings us back to the garden and restores everything that Adam lost, communion with God and, and innocency and holiness, he gives us more than what Adam lost. He gives us more than what Adam had in his sinless state. More happiness than what Adam experienced. And I've asked people, what else do Christians have 
that Adam and Eve did not have, even in their sinless state. And you think about it, well, we still have indwelling sin, but we've got at least two things that Adam and Eve did not have. They did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them like we do. Now, you might want to stretch that as some theologians said, well, maybe they had some kind of endowment, but we have the fullness of the Spirit. We also have the righteousness of Christ. Now, that was typified in those animal skins, but we have the actual righteousness of Christ put to our account. Adam and Eve did not have that. It was only indirect when they believed in the coming Messiah. So Christ, the second Adam, restores more than what the first Adam uh, lost. So Christ brings in heaven with him when he came to earth. Think of that. Heaven on earth came through Jesus when he came from heaven down to earth on that mission. His mission was to do several things, to defeat the devil, to show the love of God, to heal people, and so forth. But one of them was to restore heaven on earth and our communion with our creator. So um, he was on earth for 33 years uh, in a human body, human soul. But, okay, here's another deep, deep mystery. I'm a theologian, so I'll have to explain it to you. From his conception and his birth all the way to when he died and gave up his spirit on the cross, believe it or not, he was still in heaven when he was on earth. Duh. Now, I know one person knows my answer because she edited my chapter on this in my first book, The Two Natures of Christ. Um, uh, we, we, Jesus was God and man, but being, becoming man, he did not cease to be God. Being God, he was still everywhere, omnipresent. Being man, he could only be in one place at a time. How do I know that? Well, read the chapter. But the Bible, for example, says in John 3.13, mentions the Son of Man, leads up to John 3.16, and it says, no one is ascended up into heaven except the Son of Man who is in heaven. Notice, is. While Jesus was on earth in his humanity and his deity, he was still in heaven in his deity. He did not surrender his omnipresence, his omnipotence. That's the mystery of the uh, two natures in the one person. In that union of deity and humanity, that was the key that opened the door to get back in the garden and to bring heaven on earth. He brought heaven with him when he came to earth. And it was as if he was saying, you want to get back to the garden? You want to get back to God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father in communion with him and back to the garden except through me. He is the way to heaven on earth. So he brought heaven on earth, but he kind of veiled his deity, and he veiled the heavenliness except through his promises and various things that he would do that were like hints or foretastes of things to come. People wondered, who is he? But said, this is amazing what he is doing. And some of those rabbis should have said, ah, that's the second Adam. He's bringing in the new heaven and on earth. But they were blind and didn't see it. We need to have eyes to see it. So he did have a kind of heaven on earth in his person on earth. Ah, notice I said for the 33 years up until the cross. And then something changed. He didn't lose his deity, but something in his humanity. For those hours on the cross, he suffered not heaven on earth, but hell on earth. 
Think about it. Now, he didn't experience the fire, at least as far as we know, but he experienced the essence of what hell is about, the wrath of God. And he dropped signals or hints to this, such as when he said, I thirst. He wasn't just thirsty for physical water, but in hell there is no water. Luke 16, the rich man, just give me one drop. Jesus was not given one drop. Notice, by the way, it says that at the beginning of his crucifixion, they offered him this drink. They put it on a sponge or on a stick and said, take some of this. What was that all about? Were they mocking him? Maybe the Romans were, but this was a Jewish custom that Romans would allow them to do. It says it was filled with wine and myrrh, and that produces a painkiller, an analgesic. Thank God for painkillers. If you've ever had major surgery or things like that, it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, Proverbs, uh, give strong drink to him that is about to die. In other words, he's suffering. Get the guy drunk or give him that mirth so he won't feel the pain. They offered it to Jesus, but he turned it down. Why? So that he could voluntarily suffer as part of the atonement. And then, right when he said, it is finished, they offered it to him a second time, and he took it because his suffering and his atonement had been completed. Interesting uh, details that you have to compare scripture with scripture on that. So he experienced hell on earth at the cross. And that he proclaimed victory, and then he died, and then he rose. And his Now this is good. Get ready to say amen. When he was resurrected, it was a physical body greater than what he died in. Greater than what Adam had before he fell. It was now incapable not only of death but of pain. Adam before he sinned was not subject to death as long as he obeyed God. He did not experience pain. There was no pain. It was a garden of pleasure. In the garden if he had stepped on a thorn it would have tickled Eve. Hey, get a load of this. That's a funny sensation. You've been tickled like that. It's funny. Not afterwards because what happened? Step on a thorn, sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles. It's going to hurt Adam. It'll produce various pains like uh, poison ivy, stepping on thorns, getting splinters. Not when Jesus rose from the dead. His glorified body was physical but had new capabilities greater than what Adam had. Not only did not experience pain, but he could not experience pain greater than Adam. And, and again, more contrast. It was immortal. Adam's body was conditionally mortal. What I mean by that is it could die if he sinned, but it was conditional. If he did not sin, he would not die. Remember God said, on the day you sin, you're going to die. And he did, spiritually, later, physically, he could die, and he did die. Jesus could not die. 1 Corinthians 15 says he has an immortal body, just like he has um, in his union of his deity and humanity. He cannot sin, though he could be tempted. Jesus cannot die. That's a perfection of him. He cannot sin. He cannot die. He cannot lie. Um, and other such things, that's those part of his great perfections. And so in his resurrection body, here's the good thing, his new body was more than just what it was before. This is now a real foretaste 
of heaven on earth in Jesus. That's why one of the reasons he came to earth to show heaven on earth. His new body would be more fit for heaven on earth than earth on earth. That's why, think of the new capacities. He could disappear, appear someone else, somewhere else, go through walls. Uh, there's that interesting detail in Mark 16. He could change his countenance. He had this new capacity, yet it was still physical, but it had miraculous powers above and beyond. Before that, he, could, he would do miracles, but that was somewhat exceptional. Now the miracles were normal. He was now bringing in new principles greater than what the Garden of Eden was before the fall. So it was a foretaste. And I'm sure the disciples said something's different about him, just like Adam and Eve, something's different about you. And that's why they were mystified. Jesus doing certain things and they thought, this is a ghost. No, no, touch me. Here, give me something to eat. And how, how can you do that and then disappear? If you eat, how, if you're physical, but you... It was heaven on earth in the person, specifically the body of Jesus. Now the next stage of heaven on earth in history is what happens after, immediately after the second coming. It was the first coming. He went back to heaven. He's coming back again, the Bible says. And it says he sets up his kingdom on earth. I, for one, believe in the millennium that follows. For example... Uh, it's explicitly called a thousand years in Revelation 20 and it follows right after Revelation 19 which is the second coming, the chronology. Now the Bible doesn't discuss much about what happens in the millennium but one thing is it's a kind of heaven on earth. God's enemies have been vanquished at the second coming. There's a little rebellion at the end, probably demonic in nature. But the millennium will be a kind of heaven on earth or as the angel said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what it will be in the millennium. There'll be no devil to tempt us. It'll be peace on earth inhabited by only Christians. But that's also a temporary transition period. It's limited to a thousand years of heaven on earth. But it's a transition to what? From what earth is now to what it will be during the new heavens and the new earth. So look at the chronology, Revelation 20, thousand year, heaven on earth, transition, how does chapter 21 begin? Lo, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we call the eschaton, the culmination of God's plan in history. And Jesus brought it all in. So there will be the new heavens and the new earth. Somewhat, remember I said it's like a transition period in the millennium comparable to what Christians are now. We're in transition from what we used to be, the sin of Adam facing death and hell. We're not that anymore. But we're not in heaven. We don't have our glorified bodies yet. We're not sinless, but we have been justified. We have the Holy Spirit, righteousness of Christ. You can see we're in transition. But it's a guaranteed thing. It's not like, well, this is, you're on probation. You know, there are those that say, when we get saved, this is the Arminian argument, we're like Adam before the fall. We still have tendency to sin. Curiously, they say, well, a weakened original sin, but no guilt and so forth. But they'll say we're on probation like Adam and Eve. Notice, Adam and Eve were on probation. As long as they obeyed, they could live and enjoy the garden. So the Armenians say, we're on probation. We're not granted a full pardon that's 
uh, ironclad, they say, well, on probation, you better mind yourself, better not forfeit your sin, your, your salvation, one sin, and you're out. I remember my good teacher at Bible college, he said he was scared to death growing up in that Armenian church, as an Assemblies of God church, he said, whenever that, that preacher preached on fire and brimstone, he said he was always afraid that an angel would show up and say, Gary McGee has sinned one too many sins. Lift up the pew and let him slide into hell. He literally was scared because he said, I'm on probation. Maybe one sin too many. No, we're not on probation. We've been granted a perfect pardon in the righteousness of Christ that will never be taken away. So you see, God gives us through the second Adam more than what the first Adam had and what he lost. So we're in transition to some extent. Not that we're going to lose it. We're not on probation. It's guaranteed. Another similarity on this principle of heaven on earth and the transition is the intermediate state of those that die in Christ. When we die, our souls go directly to heaven. What about our bodies? They're either buried or some people cremate them or they're lost at sea and eaten by sharks. But... Uh, they eventually decompose, you know, from Adam, from dirt you were created, and Adam, and you're going back to dirt. But uh, what about our souls? Our souls are in heaven, our bodies are on earth. Right? Do, you, do you see where I'm going with this, the theme heaven on earth? Our soul first goes there. What about our body? God loves us too much, body and soul, to leave our body in the grave. What's he going to do? He's going to raise it again. Okay, he's going to raise us to have a body just like Adam before the fall. No. 1 Corinthians 15, our body will be like the second Adam, not like the first. We will have immortal bodies, incapable of sin, incapable of pain. Again, heaven on earth, transition periods through the Lord Jesus, the second Adam. By contrast, the bodies of the lost are in the earth, decomposing. What about their souls? They're in Hades. I was reading Jonathan Edwards on that, my favorite theologian, and in one of his unpublished manuscripts, um, he said that I have actually read, he, he talked about the souls in Hades, and they're already suffering. Luke 16, the rich man is suffering flames. Even though he's not in his body, his soul is still subject to the flames of, of Hades. Hades is like the first stage of hell. And, he, and Edwards said, they tremble for their future resurrection. Yes, the lost will be raised. Look it up in Daniel 12, 2. Um, some will be raised up to everlasting contempt, but the others to eternal life. And he says, they're suffering, but they're trembling. We don't want our bodies back because we're suffering in our soul. We don't want to burn with our bodies. And God says, yes, you will. Well, what about Christians? The exact opposite. Those that are in heaven now, dear brethren, in their souls, look forward to their resurrection bodies because God loves us and wants to reunite us he, he, he put Adam and Eve together as what in German it's a gestalt it's a unity that's why death is a terrible thing to split asunder the soul and the body it was not part of God's original plan it's a curse but God overcomes that by said I'm not just going to save your soul and glorify that but your body I'm going to raise it up glorify it and you're going to be reunited the souls of those in heaven look forward to their resurrection unlike those that are in Hades that Tremble about that. Y'all ever thought about this? Okay, what about heaven being 
the restored garden. Well, that old Stephen Stills song, we've got to get ourselves back. Anybody remember that? Nobody old enough to remember him. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Jesus does. He opens the door to paradise because three times in the New Testament, heaven is called paradise. Luke 23, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was caught up to heaven and it says he went to the third heaven. He went to paradise, same as Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. Revelation 2, 7 also calls heaven paradise. Many years ago, a friend of mine, a Christian lawyer, a good one, back in Texas, wrote a book about the parallels between the first few chapters of Genesis and the last chapters of Revelation, literally from Genesis to Revelation, says, well, there's a garden, there's paradise restored. What about the tree of life and things like that? Fascinating little book. Heaven is paradise restored. We're back in the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden. Hebrew means pleasures. And God communed with Adam and Eve in the first garden. We will commune with God in the new Eden, paradise, heaven. If there is a heaven on earth, there is also heaven in heaven. Think about that. There's also hell in hell, not just hell on earth. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. What's the tree of life in the new paradise, the new Garden of Eden, which is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth? There are those that say, yes, there will be a literal tree, and you have to go and eat off that to sustain your life, so you have to wait to turn. And then they misinterpret the verse that says that the leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nation. So they say, if it's healing, that means we get sick even in our glorified bodies. And if we get sick, we've got to pull off a leaf and rub it on us or chew it on. No. They miss the typology. What is the tree of life? Jesus. He is the tree of life. He died on a tree, First Peter chapter 2 says, the cross made of wood, a tree. And so he is the tree of life. Did he not say, I'm the bread of life? He that eats of me will live forever. He is called the tree of life. Back in Revelation 2, 7, there were other trees. Revelation 22, 3 says there's no curse in the new heaven on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, because the curse laid upon mankind, including Adam and Eve, is removed through the second Adam. There'll be no temptation. No probation. Think about it. No temptation. No devils slinking around tempting us anymore. His head has been crushed and he has been thrown into hell. Revelation 19 and 20 tells us. No temptation from sin within us. We'll have no sin. No temptation from anybody else. We'll be permanently impeccable as well as immortal. In the Garden of Eden there were those four rivers. How do we see there's a river of life in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, it does say that. Now, people think there's a little water of life in this river, and oh, some people say, and you gotta go down there and put a, a scoop a cup and drink that from time to time. No, they miss it. Jesus promised the water of life. He said to the woman at the well, John 4, you know, I'll, I will ask him in, I'll give you living water. And she thought, well, you don't even have a bucket, mister. I'm, the lady, I'm talking about something spiritual. And he identifies the water of life. You know, a lot of people think Jesus is called the water of life. No. It's the Holy Spirit that he gives. And he specifically says that in John chapter 7. It says this, he spoke of the Holy Spirit that has not been yet given. It was given the day of Pentecost. It's given to us 
to regenerate us and we are forgiven. And one of my favorite verses, and I got the interpretation from Jonathan Edwards, Revelation 22.1, John gets a vision of, uh, of heaven, and he says, And behold, I saw a throne, and him that sat upon the throne, and the Lamb, and flowing from that throne is the water of life. That's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Lamb, and the water of life, the Holy Spirit, is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son to his people. It's not a literal water where we have to drink it. The Holy Spirit continues to fill us up in this new heaven and the new earth. So there's a trinity there. What about uh, this idea of Mary being the new Eve? No, no. She's part of the new Eve because when we're Christians, we become the bride of the second Adam. And he loves us too much to divorce us or to allow us to fall into sin we become the new eve and if you want to throw mary in yes she's part of the new eve but there's no human marriage jesus said so in matthew 22 but rather something greater again greater than adam and his wife jesus and his wife have the perfection of heaven on earth in the new heavens and the new earth paradise will finally be regained and restored something else then will be fulfilled that great promise of the Lord's Prayer. You remember Justin showed these crass misinterpretations of the Lord's Prayer by these false prophets. But what did Jesus mean when he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will be done in the new heavens and the new earth. Always been done in the, in the heavens. But in the new earth, the glorified, restored paradise, no sin, his will will be finally done on earth as it is in heaven perfectly and permanently. Meanwhile, Christians experience the beginning of heaven on earth. For example, what characterized the Garden of Eden wasn't just tame animals and so forth, but it was, it was God was there communing with them in the cool of the day. And they experience love and everything that I described yesterday, the communion with God, love, peace, holiness, glory. That was a foretaste of heaven that Adam tasted of. We taste of it even now, spiritually, not literally. We will later, literally, as well as physically and spiritually. The great Thomas Brooks, one of the leading Puritans, someone said he's like the Shakespeare of the Puritans, who wrote a delightful little book on assurance, and it's entitled Heaven on Earth. And when we not only are saved, but we know that we're saved, sometimes we feel closer to heaven than, than on earth. Christians have, as it were, have one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, because we're in transition. But uh, it's, there are other hints in the Bible. It says we experience um, glory and peace beyond control and full of glory, things like that. Um, Another Puritan, Richard Sibbs, is interesting, he was such a godly man, I recommend his writings. It was said about him, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. I like that. And another Puritan said, God gives us a little heaven to go to heaven in. So we can experience some of that heaven even when we're on earth, heaven on earth. We drink of the Holy Spirit, we have the righteousness of Christ, we commune with God. So heaven is contrasted not only with earth before the fall and especially after the fall, but heaven is especially contrasted with hell, just like the contrast, the enormous contrast between Jesus and Satan. 
Hell is all pain. Heaven is no pain. Heaven is all love. Hell is no love. Heaven is all peace. There is no peace in hell and many other contrasts. Now, this has been misunderstood just by people talking about trying to get heaven on earth in various ways through drugs and that stuff like that. But sometimes it gets crass. I hope nobody remembers that old goofy country song years ago. I don't really follow country music. But remember there was a song where some guy with that country accent talking about his wife and says, she's going to heaven because she's been through hell here on earth. I'm sorry, that wasn't hell on earth. That was a foretaste of hell on earth. Christians experience a foretaste of heaven when they become Christians. But non-Christians are experienced even a foretaste of hell on earth, and they think, oh, this is the worst it'll be. No, no. The worst a person goes through here on earth is going to look like paradise when they get to hell. Because the, you may have hell on earth here, but by common's grace, you still have some uh, pleasures, good food and sunsets and music. But there's nothing like that. So there's not only heaven in heaven, and heaven on earth, but there's hell in hell as well as hell on earth. Ponder this. We're, mankind is in that transition period, crossroads as it were. For Christians, earth is the closest to hell will ever be. The pain's here, broken heart, tears. But by contrast, earth is the closest to heaven that non-Christians will ever get. They'll never get any better for them. Oh, they do silly things like that stupid beer commercial years ago. Get all the gusto you can because we go around life only once. Well, that's a fool's wisdom. But uh, that's the closest they'll ever get to heaven is the joys and pleasures of earth. But that's just temporary and transitional. The great Thomas Boston, a great Scottish theologian 300 years ago, wrote a book, The Fourfold State of mankind, and he picked it up from Augustine and some others. And this has to do with heaven on earth. The first state of mankind was innocency before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could sin, and they did, but until then they were innocent, they were not impeccable. But then the second state was brought in when they sinned, they brought in a state of sin and separation from God that they passed on to their children. And we call this total depravity. And unlike Adam and Eve that were temporarily innocent and sinless, we are now worse. We can sin, and we do sin. But as I explained in one of my chapters, if you want to know which one, ask my editor here. In total depravity, we can sin, but we cannot do good. We're totally depraved. We're morally unable to do good. That's how bad we really are. So we're like Adam and Eve in this second stage when they were put out of the garden and all mankind is like that. The third state of man, the, the second one applies to everybody, the third one applies only to Christians, the third state is salvation. All sins are forgiven, but so far as the ability to sin or not sin, we're in transition. Romans 7, we can sin and we do sin, but we are still able to do good. As Christians, we're being sanctified. We can have holy desires and we can't obey God, but we go back and forth because it's transitional. We're looking forward to the fourth state, which is heaven, and specifically heaven on earth, the new heavens and the new earth. 
and the fulfillment there is, we will not only not sin, we will not be able to sin. Why doesn't someone say amen? I heard one amen. What's wrong with you folks? <laughs> amen. Remember what Justin said. He looks forward to having not just to have a perfect body. That poor guy, you know, cerebral palsy his whole life. Think about it. When he was a boy, he didn't get to run and jump and play with the other boys. Probably got made fun of by the other boys. But I, I really, I was moved to tears when he said, I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. No more sin. Oh, the body, that'll be great, but no more sin. That's promised to us in the new heavens. We'll not be able to sin. Millions of years from now, we'll, someone will say, Kurt, do you remember that thing called sin way back then? Yes, Jesus forgave it. Never anymore. So the lost sinners share the state of total depravity with the elect before our conversion. Think about it. We were born in the same state as those that are not elect. Uh, Ephesians 2, 3, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were that. But God made the difference. But those that are lost continue in totally depraved natures into hell forever. Unlike us, another contrast. We will be incapable of pain or sin. What about the lost? They'll be incapable of any pleasure, any good permanently. They will only suffer. And they will all always go on sinning but never experiencing any of the temporary pleasures of sin. Consequently, they'll always be increasingly punished. So what's the big change? The big change occurs not just when we go to heaven, but when we become Christians. When our souls are regenerated, we begin to experience heaven on earth. When we were changed from being lost sinners that were totally depraved to becoming believers in Jesus with his righteousness on us, our sins washed away, his spirit in us, and the perfect promise of eternal heaven. By the way, let me throw this in. I mentioned these people trying to establish heaven on earth through communes and pilgrimages up mountains in, in Nepal. No, that's all fail. Also ignore, ignore those that say, I experienced heaven on earth, out-of-body experience. You've heard this nonsense. You know, you read about it in those silly rags at the checkout counter at Shop and Save and all that. You know, I went to heaven. And, you know the stories. They say, I was in the hospital and my soul left the body on earth went down this dark tunnel into a room of light, heaven. And I went there, and oh, they usually say, I met Jesus. Oh, and I met Muhammad and Confucius and, you know, all sorts of people like that that were not Christians, and they come back, and they said, and I woke up in the hospital bed, and they said, I experienced heaven and earth when I was, my body was on earth, my soul left, and I had, don't believe a word of that. Totally unbelievable. These out-of-body experiences, how do you explain it? Some of them were simply dreaming. Many of them, they're just simply hallucinating. As a pastor, I visited people in the hospital and seen all sorts of hallucinations. I remember one guy, he thought he was fishing. Oh, pastor, I got a good one here. Help me pull it in. Another guy was hallucinating. He thought the room was on fire. Another one thought he saw flying newspapers. So there are certain medications that cause you to not only sense no pain, but you hallucinate like on LSD or other such things. And so they say, oh, they thought no. And then another explanation is that um, I remember one doctor described, because he had seen this often, he says, they, say, they think they're leaving their body going through a dark tunnel into a room of light. 
they're seeing the light on the ceiling and they have tunnel vision and they're somehow dreaming half awake that they're going out. No, 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 they didn't. If your soul left your body, you die. That's what the definition of death is. Two other explanations is that they're just simply lying, wanting to get attention, or it's a satanic delusion because they say nothing to fear because we go to be with Jesus and Muhammad and these others. No, so ignore the out-of-body experiences. But yet, the Bible does talk about prophets and apostles that did go to heaven and see God, and they did come back. The apostle Paul did. Remember, Jesus came from heaven, came back to earth, went back up to heaven. Some others went up and came back. And um, remember, Paul said he, couldn't, he was not allowed to describe it to us. But that doesn't happen anymore. No, no, this going down a tunnel or out of body, even amongst some so-called Christians, like some of the false prophets that were shown in Justin's um, videos. That there are those, Kenneth Hagin, one of the greatest false prophets, he said not only did he leave his body and go to heaven, did you know he said when he was a little boy, he, he went to hell for like 72 hours or some such nonsense. Sorry, Kenneth, you went to hell, you'd be there still. And I think that's where he is now. So that was temporary, just like the temporary endowments of prophets, apostles, speaking in tongues, gift of healings. So ignoring by it says, I've gone to heaven and experienced heaven on earth. What happens, I'm about to draw to a conclusion, what happens when we die? Our body goes into the earth, the pastor does your funeral, your relatives weep, and they rejoice if they're Christians because you've gone to heaven because your body's in the ground on earth your soul is in heaven with Jesus. No temporary time of waiting, of uh, soul sleep, unconscious. No, you're wide awake in there. How do I know? Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise. That's given to us too. We immediately go to heaven when we die. And then later we'll be raised up again. What about that curse on creation? It says in Revelation, there'll be no more curse. The universe was affected um, with entropy. And that's why there's death and pain. But the Bible says there will be a new heavens and a new earth, new cosmos. It will be resurrected better than what it was before Adam and Eve sinned. And then we will be in the garden of God in heaven with our heavenly husband, the king of kings, forever and ever, walking with him through his garden. It's like he says, you're my beloved God. I want to show you my garden. And he leads us through his garden forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful promise of, of heaven on earth and heaven in heaven and the new glorified state of the, the Garden of Eden with our Lord Jesus. It's greater than we can imagine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bring in more than what the first Adam lost because you do everything perfectly perfectly well. We give you the praise and we look forward to being with you one day. In your holy name, amen.